the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 19 of Magic Markets. We are only a teenager for one more week, Mo. Uh, Very exciting and uh, we're really stoked about our new artwork, which our listeners would have seen last week. And it's a long weekend coming up in South Africa and it's just a lot of reasons to be happy. Uh, The US markets had a bit of a bump. You know, there's just just a lot of stuff going on. So Mo, welcome to the show as ever. Great to be with you here. Ghost, always lovely to co-host the show with you. Uh, I think some of the the uh, happiness that you're picking up is also because it's it's going to be April Fools. Uh, so we 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 don't want to make this the April Fools episode and be like, hi, you know, we told you. But I think a lot of quarter end window dressing happening as well. Uh, and yeah, like you say, you, you're seeing some sort of uptick in terms of uh, of U.S. markets. Uh, but I don't know how much of how much of that's actually genuine. Around quarter end, I tend to get quite skeptical around market moves, and you know, I tend to like to use a, a much longer term lens. So let's see how it looks next week when everyone's back from their long weekend. Yeah, that's a fact. I must be honest, that Volkswagen into Volkswagen story, I kind of borderline <laughs> slightly fell for. I was like, this sounds ridiculous enough in this modern world that it's not totally impossible. And then uh, luckily, um, <laughs> so I saw someone on Twitter comment that it's an early April Fool's and I therefore avoided making a complete fool of myself, in fact, for the radio segment, which will go out tomorrow morning. By the time this is live, it would have happened already that I do on Alim Radio and Magic 828 where I made reference to Volkswagen's renaming. So luckily I got to slot something in at the end there about the fact that it is in fact an April Fool's joke. Uh, I also, part of me thought that Ark's new space exploration uh, and Innovation Fund may be an April Fool's joke, but unfortunately it's not. It really does include John Deere, uh, Netflix. My favorite thing on Twitter in the entire week was I saw someone make a comment that they can't wait to watch Space Flicks on their moon tractor, which really just summed up for me so much of what's happened. I think the important thing is we know that that maybe Kathy Wood and the team are doing some real, really, really detailed analysis on the stocks they hold there. I mean, Netflix obviously sits in her space exploration fund because there's a show on there called Space Force. So if you really dig back down in there on the fundamentals, maybe it should be included. <laughs> exactly. I mean, based on the fact that Tesla is supposedly not a car company, I imagine that John Deere is not actually a tractor company. And they are currently have a, a secret space program to design beautiful green and yellow rockets that will presumably leave the free state and, and, and travel to the moon as part of a SpaceX type South African play. I mean, I don't know, you know, anything, anything clearly is possible, but that's still potentially not the most ridiculous things we've seen in the market in the past sort of week and a half. Uh, As we dealt with, you know, the ship finally coming unstuck, then the hedge fund came unstuck. And that's the topic of tonight's show is we're going to talk about uh, how hedge funds work, how they manage to blow themselves up, what happens when they do, why banks lose money. Um, I mentioned it a little bit in my ghost mail this week. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to tapping into your knowledge in this space as well. So where should we start? Should we talk about, uh, Mo, maybe, you know, what is a hedge fund? Like, why is it different to a loan-only fund for you? 
What is the elevator pitch reason? Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, hedge, hedge funds are not something even remotely new. You know, it's something that's actually been around for, for the longest time. Uh, you could go back to like the early 1900s and there were some kind of private investment firms which were categorized as or would be categorized as, as, as hedge funds. And then around the 1950s, I think that's when the name kind of really set in because, you know, there were some individuals that started up a fund. Uh, the fund had some hedge properties and that's where the term hedge fund comes from. Uh, and then it's been in and out of flavor from the 1970s into the 1990s, very popular, then kind of fizzled out again. Then in the run-up to the financial crisis, you know, very popular, then fizzled out again. And then post-financial crisis became very popular and is, is now actually a very large uh, asset class, also supported by institutional investors as well. Um, the name's a bit of a misnomer, as rather has become a bit of a misnomer, in that early hedge funds were literally just that. Uh, they looked to actually extract some sort of absolute value from the market, and they did that by going long certain stocks, buying certain stocks, and then going short other stocks and other securities uh, or selling them. And as a result, it was a hedged exposure. You, you kind of very much in the in, in the vein of a market neutral equity long short fund as, as they're known today. However, over the course of the last, let's call it decade or two, those have morphed and they've morphed into funds that basically can put a whole bunch of exotic instruments into the fund. Uh, they don't have the same level of scrutiny or, or, or regulation as, for example, a mutual fund or unit trust. Uh, and so as a result, they can put in lots of leverage. They can hold derivative positions. They can have no hedging at all. They can just be leveraged plays on specific assets. And I think we'll get into some of that detail right now. So that's how it's evolved. Uh, and I think the next incarnation of that, we're going to definitely get into this part of the discussion, is that uh, call it around 10 years ago or so, some very prominent hedge fund names like the George Soros and so forth shut down their hedge funds and then opened up family offices. And again, that started out as a small investment vehicle managing private money for family and friends. But the, here's the big kicker is a family office is essentially or can essentially be a hedge fund by a different name. And because it's a family office, because they're not out there and soliciting you know, public money and so forth, uh, they pretty much exist with very little to no scrutiny. Uh, and that's resulted in a whole bunch of unintended consequences, uh, certainly that we've seen play out in a very large scale over the course of the last week. So Mo, that's interesting regarding family offices. And obviously, one thing we know about the world of financial services and bankers and traders is they often try and find innovative ways to get, shall we say, around regulations and avoid scrutiny and get the best possible outcome for themselves. And luckily, uh, certainly currently, you know, I'm sure Canada's the same, but sitting in South Africa, it's it's quite a well-regulated space. I mean, one thing about our country is that the financial markets are, are pretty sound, um, although there was a lot of rhetoric around uh, PPC in the past couple of days where the share price ran very hard before they announced their uh, debt restructure had made some solid progress. So unfortunately, there's no way around it. Sometimes stuff does leak and sometimes insider trading happens in the markets and then we rely on the you know market surveillance department of the JSE to find that and stamp it out because it is a criminal offense so you know hopefully if anything untoward has happened there then they will find that out but reality is that people find their ways around regulations and when they do they then do crazy stuff i mean i know from speaking to hedge funds that leverage of up to 3 times is kind of you know the maximum norm and I think that uh, this particular hedge fund, which we're going to talk about, was up to, I've seen reports of up to 10 times. I've seen other reports of five times. I'm not sure what you've seen in terms of reports around what leverage they managed to blow themselves up with. 
Yeah, I, I think the jury's still out on that because, you know, people were saying that around December of last year, um, and, and the fun we're talking about here is, is Archegos Capital Management, right? Uh, it, it, it does not apply. It's not arch egos. We know hedge funders tend to have these very large egos. Uh, it's not arch egos. It's Archegos. That's my dad joke for the day. <laughs> Archegos Capital Management is, is, is the fund in question, family, uh, if essentially a family office. Um, and they were saying reports of uh, the, 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 the guy who was running it, uh, whose name is Bill Huang, uh, essentially having a net worth of, of, of between 10 and $20 billion uh, in December of last year. Now, if you just apply a five times leverage on that, uh, it implies a, a fund size uh, of up to a hundred billion, maybe even more. So I've seen reports saying, you know, the size of the positions that need to be liquidated are anywhere between 20, 50, even some reports going as high as a hundred billion dollars. And the fact is right now, we don't know. What we do know is that uh, starting at, in the latter part of last week, Friday, we actually saw around $20 billion worth of securities being essentially dumped on the market. And that was the opening salvo. Uh, so I think that certainly speaks towards the sort of scale we're seeing and, and may well imply leverage ratios of, of five, seven, or maybe even 10 times uh, within that fund. And what's crazy with that is is normal investors get hurt, don't they? Because there were a couple of really big companies that saw their share prices absolutely tank as that 20 billion was being put through. One of them was Discovery, not the local medical aid company, but rather the international media giant. Uh, Viacom, the Chinese company, I think Tencent even took a bit of a knock mm -hmm. from that. And and that's unfortunately what ends up happening in these situations is normal investors end up bearing the brunt of ultimately, you know, either bad behavior or poor risk management by the banks. And in this case, it's still not 100% clear what actually really happened. It looks like you know, Goldman Sachs kind of led the charge on pulling the plug because they seem to have not lost any money. It almost seems like Credit Suisse was asleep at the wheel and they've lost, I think I've seen reports of up to about $4 billion. They were also on the wrong end of Greensill Capital. So that's a very unpleasant start to the year for Credit Suisse, that's for sure. Uh, Nomura has lost money. They're a Japanese investment bank. They actually opened an office in Cape Town around 2016. I remember this because recruiters phoned me to ask if I wanted to work for them. And funnily enough, I thought to myself, mm, you know, with these internationals, it's easy come, easy go. And to my knowledge, that Cape Town office has been closed. So, you know, that premonition was, was pretty much spot on. But they've also lost a lot of money. So it seems like Goldman's managed to get out unscathed and, and, and they seem to be the smartest guys in the room in this case. Yeah, I want to maybe re rewind just a little bit there because you were talking about the, the kind of holdings that uh, Archegos was actually holding. And you mentioned Discovery, which is the, the media company here in the US, as well as, as Viacom, CBS, which these are big, massive companies. And both of those stocks uh, from the time the sell-off kind of got initiated last week to now are down in the region of around 50%. So that's massive. Uh, and then there was also exposure through your, your, uh, your ADRs, American Depository Receipts. So that those are securities that are listed and traded in the US, but that allow investors to participate or hold exposures to stocks in other jurisdictions. And that's where exposures to Baidu, which is, is, is the Chinese search giant, uh, Tencent, uh, those exposures came through uh, US ADRs. Uh, and the declines in that, I mean, I think Tencent, I stand corrected, down between 5 to 10% from when the sell-off came through. And that's for a very large company, uh, Baidu, in a similar kind of, uh, of, of position. Now, what really kicked this off 
is that Viacom CBS had a stock offering that, that they were going to go to the market with, uh, and that fell apart. And once that fell apart, it essentially, you know, you saw some pressure come through in terms of that particular share price, and that triggered, I guess, the margin calls. Uh, you said that the banks in this instance were, were being irresponsible, and the banks generally operate with hedge funds through their prime broking unit. And we'll go into a little bit of detail around what prime broking actually is. But these prime broking units are essentially shops that offer multiple services to these hedge funds, uh, not the least of which is leverage. And specifically, what's very interesting here is the exposures of Archegos uh, obviously flew below the radar because they weren't the direct holders of the stock in many of these names. They were essentially using a derivative or effectively a total return swap. It's a derivative. Uh, that means that you would have seen, if you're looking at a shareholder register on these stocks, you would have seen Goldman Sachs. You would have seen Credit Suisse as the actual shareholders because they were they were buying the stock to hedge their exposure under this contract that they had with Archegos. So the danger in this kind of instance is that because an entity like this is unregulated, is that regulators have absolutely no handle on which players have positions that pose a systemic risk. And in this instance, this would really be one of those examples. A lot of people are saying that this Archegos Capital Management is very much reminiscent of what happened under the LTCM or long-term capital management crisis that we had a little while ago. So that for me is the big risk is we look at regulated players and we say oh, they're too big to fail or these are small enough that we can allow them to fail. But there's a whole shadow economy of financial services, uh, shadow banking, if you want to call it this, that exists below the radar. And no one's really got a firm handle on that. And a lot of these bull markets, when they run really hard, they run really hard because of leverage, ultimately. So the worry is always when something like this happens and, and Greensill was tiny in comparison to this. I guess the argument is always, how much leverage is this going to suck out the system? How will the banks feel about this? Will they maybe lend less against you know, hedge funds trying to do this? And what could that mean for the market as a whole? And I've been watching the last few days, and I was watching stuff like Tesla flirting with $600. It dropped below it a couple of times intraday, but didn't close below it. Um, Arc Innovation uh, down around $110 again, didn't close below it. And now it's bounced back quite hard. I think Tesla's back at 660 And I'm watching those two just because, for me, they are the canary in the coal mine of the stimmy traders, to be blunt. So people who are chasing those those two really are doing it either with the call options and then there's the hedging in the back end or whatever the case may be. And I think if we see a decent sell-off there, that could be an indication that maybe there's more pain to come for these so-called meme stocks, but they've managed to bounce off those levels. So we'll have to see what this means for leverage in the system as a whole. But just before the show, we were talking about how the NASDAQ is actually still up versus the beginning of December, uh, which I hadn't actually realized until I went and looked. I thought it I thought it was down, but it's really only the the sort of higher risk, long duration tech stocks that are down. And it'll be interesting to see over the next few weeks if we do see anything happen in the market as a result of the fallout of this hedge fund issue and, and maybe a bit less leverage. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what concerns me, Ghost. I mean, so f first of all, I just want to I want to touch on one key point, and it's there's a theme that's come through in a number of these episodes. I mean, we're in in, in our episode where we discussed trading the scandals, Greensill, we spoke around 
fraud and irresponsible actors in the financial system. Uh, a couple of shows ago, we spoke about leverage in the system and, and we spoke about debt and where that goes. We've also spoken uh, about you know the risk flags that have popped up in the market. So this is a theme that we're seeing very much, I guess, uh, indicative of the kind of froth that we're seeing in the market, uh, certainly when a market is running this hot. But to your point around leverage in the system, and this is really what gets me concerned, is that We've got leverage in this instance coming through from the retail investor because there's been massive stimmy checks that have been email, uh, that have been mailed to everyone in the US and that's found its way through the retail investor into equity markets predominantly. We then have tons of leverage in the financial system. We know and we've spoken about it again on the show around how zero interest rates and, and possibly if you looked at a shadow rate, which I think we spoke about as well, you know, that's firmly in negative territory. Uh, when you pile all of this debt on top of one another. Uh, and then there's this fancy thing. Uh, it's a term. It's called hypothecation or rehypothecation. Uh, and I don't want to scare our listeners. I mean, that's just really the word you use when you want to win a Scrabble match against your family members, right? But all this means is, is this is what your prime brokers have been doing behind the scenes. And what, what does that mean? I just want to sum it up very succinctly. It's when someone essentially provides collateral, in this instance, a fund provides collateral to their prime broker in exchange for leverage. So that's simple enough. But then what goes on behind the scenes is there's something called rehypothecation. And under the current structure, a prime broker can then use that same collateral that was provided to them and leverage themselves up even further. And that's how you're getting to these leverage ratios of seven, maybe even 10 times coming out of these prime broking houses, out of the banks, into the financial system. And effectively, that's what makes up what, what certainly is termed the shadow banking system. Uh, it really sounds like a house of cards. Uh, can the authorities allow this to unravel? I mean, we're already seeing the Biden administration talking about yet another stimulus package. Maybe the, the good news here is that it's going to be directed towards infrastructure and childcare and education, all of those good real economy things. But I think it certainly signals an intent from large-scale policymakers that they will do whatever it takes to keep the party going and not to take the punch bowl away. And that is a very strong tide to push against, uh, but it doesn't mean that the risks go away. In fact, they just keep on compounding with every additional dollar that's thrown into the system. And it makes it difficult to know whether it's time to run away or to just, I mean, in my case, sit tight because I'm not really a natural seller of stocks. I'm building this portfolio over a very long time is the goal at least. So what I've done this week is I've looked at it and said, okay, a lot of the long duration tech stocks are down as much as 30% since December, but the RAND is managing to kind of keep it together, which is quite unusual because normally when there's a risk off trade, the RAND also gets hammered, which hasn't happened here. So I actually bought more Unicorn this week, which regular listeners will recall a few shows ago, we had Craig and Tony from Anbro on to talk about the Unicorn fund that they run. And it's, it's a global fund and, and very much based on, on tech stocks, not entirely, but there's a lot of tech in there. So I decided to buy more of that because I thought, okay, well, you know, the Rand is strong. Uh, tech is down like 30%. It's not a bad entry point. So that's what I did this week. Should have bought PPC, but uh, you know, unfortunately I didn't get the memo same time as some people in the market quite clearly did. Mo, anything you're doing in your portfolio in reaction to what you're seeing or are you kind of hanging tight at the moment, letting the quarter end uh, you know, happen and get out the way and then you'll, you'll reassess? 
Yeah, Ghost, I'm glad you didn't trade on, on, on PPC because uh, not only is that illegal as, as you indicated, uh, but, you know, I, I think if, let's, let's go back in terms of what I'm doing uh, right now in the markets. I, I'm concerned around the froth. I think we spoke about it on our last show, you know, investment journeys. Uh, it's why I clearly demarcate my very long-term plays where I let those positions run. I really just ignore it and I kind of look at those over a much uh, less frequent basis. I just want to buy companies that I believe in that have five, 10 years or more worth of runway. And then in the trading portfolios, uh, because I'm wary of fighting against central banks throwing ever increasing amounts of leverage into the system, that's been very hard for me to justify an outright short position. Uh, I've done shorts in the past. Again, we spoke about it on the show last week. Uh, but the way I'm playing this right now is I'm looking at optionality at uh, effectively derivatives, put options and put spreads to try and hedge some of my downside risk exposure. And then I've also traded out in, in, in this is the more high risk portfolio. I've traded out of names where I just didn't have that high conviction simply because valuations are stretched and I'd rather play in a space where I'm in my zone of comfort. For me, I look at it very much in terms of my own risk budget. And that's precisely what I've been doing. I've got exposure to Tencent. I'm not unhappy with that. I've got exposure to other gaming stocks in, in the Chinese sector, Huya, which again, we've spoken about. Uh, I've also, uh, incidentally, just trimmed, uh, and, and thankfully so, I did trim my very large pharma positions, because uh, pharmaceuticals, because those were getting quite large in the portfolio. That was Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and thankfully, this was before the sell-off that we've seen over the course of the last week. So on a relative basis, that's great. But I, I'll now wait for quarter end to move out of the way before I now redeploy some of that capital to markets again. When you said farmer positions, I was wondering if you were talking about John Deere's space John program. Deere. <laughs> there we go. You see, on the, same, on the same page. Um, and Mo, something that I just want to actually mention to our listeners. So after last week's show, you asked me a really cool question around, am I someone who prefers diversification in my portfolio or the sort of high conviction school of thought? And I went away and thought about it because, I mean, I learn as much from you on this show, frankly, as anyone else does who's listening to you. And I went and looked at my portfolio and it was really interesting because I looked back and I thought, okay, which were the names that I had really high conviction on? And they've all done extremely well. There's almost no exceptions. And then there were a bunch of things I bought where I thought, okay, I need to diversify or yeah, it makes sense to have this in my portfolio long-term. And that's the stuff that has kind of really um, let the team down. So... I'm actually going forward, probably going to try and be a little bit more focused, a little bit more high conviction stuff, worry less about, you know, am I really exposed to a, a wide variety of sectors? Obviously not be silly about it and go and put all the money into one place. But just in general, I think going forward, I'm going to go back to higher conviction, not being as concerned about diversification. And, and yeah, it was thanks to you asking me that question last week, made me go and actually have a sniff around the portfolio and see, see how it's all looking. I think that's great because, you know, this is a conversation between us and, and even with our listeners. We, we don't give financial advice. This is about our own journeys through this. And we're all learning. I'm learning as well. I mean, something that I did introspectively after our, our show last week is I, I went away and I said, you know, how do I look at 
Uh, how do I look at stocks? How do I look at those high conviction, low conviction plays? Uh, and that was also partly the reason why, you know, I trimmed some of the positions that weren't there. And, and the one most important thing for me is that I found myself in, in very small positions, yes, but in getting sucked into the hype of some of these stocks that are really pumped out there. Definitely not Tesla, because you've you've drilled that one into me. If I if I went and bought Tesla, I think you'd you'd, you'd fly here to beat me on the head. I'd have to disown you immediately. There were a number of stocks in there that I would have categorized as having become, they didn't start out that way, but they've become meme stocks or they've become hyped stocks that are held because Kathy Wood holds it in her ARK fund. And so I didn't blanket go out and sell anything that Kathy Wood holds in her fund, but I did go out and say, why am I holding these stocks? Do I still believe in the underlying investment thesis that I had looked at for myself? Uh, and I looked at that very critically and used that as my filter in terms of which positions I needed to trim out of the portfolio. And last question before we go, Mo, because we are basically out of time. Please tell me that you didn't buy the Deliveroo IPO and take a 30% bath in the process. I, I read I read your recent piece on, on Finance Coast on Deliveroo, and you and I share the same view. I hate chasing IPOs. Uh, we spoke about it, I think, in our show, SPAC Attack. And for listeners who are only finding magic markets now, go and listen to some of these previous episodes, and we'll take you through the same kind of journey we've gone through. Uh, I also steer away from IPOs just because the very architecture of IPOs in this kind of market environment plays itself to a lot of hype. Uh, not a very good price exploration. And as you indicated, it's the bankers trying to maximize how much they get for the company. It's the founders of the company who got in pre-IPO who are looking at ways to liquidate their positions over time. So I've steered away from not just Deliveroo, but pretty much most IPOs. I mean, one that I really looked at quite seriously was, was Roblox. It's a stock I like. I like the business model. I think there's, there's, there's something great there from a gamification perspective, from an ecosystem environment perspective. But because it's an IPO, I want to wait for price discovery and the stock's down. It, it listed around 71. It ratcheted up a little bit and now we're down to the mid 60s. So I'm going to wait for that price exploration, wait for better data out there and then make a critical assessment in terms of whether I allocate some capital to that. Yeah, so we take exactly the same approach there. So that's good to know. Mo, that's all we have time for for episode 19. It's been a really interesting chat, a lot of different topics actually. Thank you so much. And obviously we'll do this again uh, same time next week to our listeners. Thank you for listening to Magic Markets. Please go rate us on your favorite platform. Share us, retweet us. It all helps to grow the show and share the knowledge ultimately. Mo, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Take care and we'll chat to you next week. Remember to visit thefinancegoes.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.